So equity has two dimensions. One is to recognize that those impacts are playing out disproportionately and make sure that we're targeting resources to help those on the front lines of climate impacts. But the other side of equity is the fact that right now we have a lot of people who just are living in poverty, are living in difficult situations, have contributed very little to the carbon emissions that are fueling climate change. And they actually need to see improved development. They need to come out of poverty. They need to have energy access. So equity is also about not just lowering emissions, but making sure that clean energy, clean technologies are available to everyone who needs them, not just a select few. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to the Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. Today, I'm your solo host, Vernice Miller-Travis, and we'll begin a series on climate and equity, looking at how climate change is already impacting low-income and communities of color and how the path to a climate-neutral future must include an effort to address economic fairness and environmental inequities. We have an outstanding guest joining us today, Ms. Rachel Cletus who is the Climate Policy Manager for the Union of Concerned Scientists, and she is the lead author of their fabulous report, Surviving and Thriving in the Face of Rising Seas, Building Resilience in Communities on the Front Lines of Climate Change. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So maybe we can start by sharing with our audience a little bit about your background. So I, at the Union of Concerned Scientists, have been doing a fair amount of work with my colleagues on both climate and energy issues. I work on trying to make sure that our federal, state, local, and international policies are effective in terms of building resilience, uh, reducing emissions as we try to confront the challenge of climate change but also to make sure that equity is a core component of our solutions, not just an afterthought. Excellent. What would you say motivates you to do the work that you do? Well, for me, climate change is one of the biggest threats we face as humanity, and it's touching every aspect of our life. It's not just an environmental problem. It is an economic problem. It's a social problem. It's a justice issue, because the impacts are already playing out around the world. And they are disproportionately affecting communities of color and low-income communities. So for me, this work has always been about how do we make a better future for our kids and grandkids? And how do we do it in a way that's inclusive, that brings people in to work towards a common purpose? And this is about cooperation. It's not a zero-sum game where we're trying to get ahead of anyone. This is about us trying to ensure a better future for the planet. So, Rachel, we use three terms a lot, or I should say those of us who talk about these issues use three terms a lot, and I hope you can define these three terms for our audience. The first being climate change, the second being climate equity, and the third being climate justice. 
Sure. So climate change, as we all know, is something that climate change we're experiencing right now is human-caused. It's primarily a result of carbon emissions from our burning of fossil fuels as well as cutting down tropical forests. These carbon emissions are accumulating in our atmosphere and they're creating a heat-trapping blanket essentially around the Earth. And that's making global average temperatures increase. Uh, we are seeing uh, record impacts because of these temperature increases and those impacts include changes in precipitation patterns. For example, we get these extreme rainfall events that cause flooding. We get heat waves, we get drought, we get wildfires. We're seeing sea levels rising around the world. And here in the US on the East Coast, we have some of the highest levels of sea level rise uh, globally that have been experienced. And that means more flooding, putting more people and property in harm's way. So there are a variety of impacts that are already unfolding because of climate change, and these impacts will worsen if we don't take action to sharply limit the emissions that are fueling climate change. And so then what is meant by the term climate equity and then also climate justice, or are they interchangeable? Well, climate impacts are playing out across the world, as we've just been talking about. But the reality is that these impacts are falling very differently on different people. We know that poorer communities, uh, people who have fewer resources, are more extremely affected when extreme events happen. They're disproportionately affected, and their ability to bounce back from these kinds of events is also compromised uh, because of the fact that they have fewer resources. So equity has two dimensions. One is to recognize that those impacts are playing out disproportionately and make sure that we're targeting resources to help those on the front lines of climate impacts. But the other side of equity is the fact that right now around the planet and right here in the U.S., we have a lot of people who just are living in poverty, are, are living in difficult situations, have contributed very little to the carbon emissions that are fueling climate change. And they actually need to see improved development. They need to come out of poverty. They need to have energy access so equity is also about not just lowering emissions, but making sure that clean energy, clean technologies are available to everyone who needs them, not just a select few. And then how would you differentiate between climate equity and climate justice? Climate justice is a term that for me is, is in, intertwined with our efforts to gain justice across the board, across here in the U.S., for example, across our society and economy to make sure that opportunities are available to everyone. So climate justice comes from a long tradition, actually, that's even older, which has to do with environmental justice here in the U.S. We know that communities of color and low-income communities have been disproportionately affected by things like toxic pollution. Oftentimes, the places where they were allowed to live and buy land uh, as we were coming out of an era of segregation were places that were either places that flooded more, places that were already polluted. Highways were built near neighborhoods where a lot of people live and their children are suffering from uh, disproportionately high asthma rates. So climate justice is just one dimension of all these aspects of environmental justice that we need to confront as a nation. Thank you, Rachel. 
So in this episode of our series on climate equity, we want to focus on the report that you have authored and want you to share some of the major findings of the Union of Concerned Scientists report, Surviving and Thriving in the Face of Rising Seas. Can you share with us, Rachel, sort of the concept or the the idea for why UCS felt that they needed to undertake a report such as this? And then what were some of your major findings? So the Union of Concerned Scientists has been working on the issue of sea level rise and coastal threats like flooding for a while now, and we have tried to create a a base of scientific information and understanding that communities can use to assess their risks. As we've been doing this work, we recognize that there are communities that will be affected disproportionately, primarily low-income and minority communities along our coasts. And so a couple of years ago, in November 2014, UCS and the NAACP uh, convened a a workshop in Baltimore and Maryland where we gathered uh, thought leaders to talk about this, the equity dimensions of these coastal climate impacts, such as tidal flooding, extreme precipitation, more damaging storm surge from coastal storms. And we essentially used uh, that convening of of, uh, folks to talk about what kind of a research agenda would be most helpful for people who are doing this work in frontline communities. That was the genesis of the report that you mentioned, Surviving and Thriving in the Face of Rising Seas. And in this report, what we tried to do was develop a tool, a data-driven tool that could be used to assess hotspots of climate vulnerability along the east and gulf coast of our country. And this tool essentially uses socioeconomic information coming from the census so variables like poverty rates, race, etc. And we also combine this with the, the climate risk data that we had collected earlier, things like sea, sea level rise estimates and projections out for the next 30 years. And we superimpose these two sets of data to identify places that were at risk, both because of climate factors, as well as because of socioeconomic factors that led to disproportionate impacts. And the other piece of the analysis was to take this and make recommendations about how we should better target our resilience resources to make sure that communities that are on the front lines are better prepared. So, for example, that our federal and state agencies use a tool of this type to target, identify communities and target resources to them ahead of time before disasters strike and engage with communities on an ongoing basis so that they can help define the more resilient future that they would want. We also did a number of case studies in the report to highlight places around the country that are at risk and steps that they are or could take to make themselves more resilient. We did case studies in Dorchester, Maryland, Charleston, South Carolina, in Opelika and Hialeah and Florida, Gulfport, Mississippi, and Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about any of those case studies? And and if I could pick, let me pick Dorchester County in Maryland on the Eastern Shore, since I am here based in Maryland. Sure. So, for example, in Dorchester County, Maryland, as uh, your listeners might well know, there are serious threats from uh, sea level rise, as well as the fact that there's land subsidence. So the combination of the two is making its low-lying landscape very vulnerable to flooding. And more than half of the county lies in the 100-year floodplain. That means that, you know, even when we get routine storms, you get serious flooding. 
We also know that sea level rise is projected to increase by more than a foot by 2045. So that means that these uh, threats of flooding are only going to worsen going forward. We know this place is very special because uh, it has a very unique history uh, for the African-American community. It's the birthplace of Harriet Tubman. We know that a number of freedmen and women settled in this area after the Civil War. This was one of the areas that they were allowed to own land uh, because the land was low-lying and swampy and not considered desirable. But really thriving communities with rich histories have formed in these places. Yet now they're facing threats, unprecedented threats that are making it harder and harder to live there and do things that like fishing, like farming, that used to be the core part of their livelihoods. Many of these communities are very small and isolated. They're easily cut off. The roadways are easily cut off when there's flooding. We also learned that many folks are using septic tank systems, which tend to get overcome when there's this type of flooding. And that makes places, water supplies get compromised. It also essentially makes some of these places uninhabitable for periods of time. So the reality is that when we look at these sea level rise projections, we know that there are a lot of communities that are going to have to make some tough decisions about whether they want to relocate, how can they continue to exist as communities when they relocate rather than get fragmented. We need significant public investment to make this a reality so that people have options and can make positive choices about their futures. And the reality is we're failing these communities now. We're forcing people to make decisions on their own rather than collectively offering choices to them. There are definitely efforts underway. The state of Maryland has a commission on climate change. They've developed an ambitious climate adaptation plan but we still need the resources to implement these types of plans and especially to implement them in cooperation with the communities that are experiencing these impacts. So, Rachel, where where else could folks go to learn more about your study? And, and I want to say to our listeners that this study is comprehensive. It is mind boggling. The visuals, the maps in this in the report will really, really, I think, shake you the way they did me. And it's pretty comprehensive. I mean, you are talking about the entire Gulf Coast all the way around the Atlantic seaboard up to Maine, from Florida to Maine, yes? Yes. So as you say, Bernice, we have done uh, maps and projections all along the eastern Gulf Coast for sea level rise, uh, current sea level rise, as well as what's projected. And we have a lot of the other indicators, the socioeconomic indicators as well, available for many counties along the eastern Gulf Coast. You can find out more at www.ucsusa.org forward slash surviving and thriving. So, Rachel, you use the term resilient or resilience in your description of the report and its findings. What is it? It's become a very popular term within the context of of climate change and, and sea level rise and global warming. What does resilient communities mean to you and why do you think it's become so popular? Well, we originally started using the word resilience in the way that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, defines it. And they define it as the capacity of social, economic, and environmental systems to cope with a hazardous event or trend or disturbance, responding or reorganizing in ways that maintain their essential function, identity, and structure, while also maintaining the capacity for adaptation, learning, and transformation. 
So that's quite a mouthful. It is a scientific term in that context, the way it's used. But I do want to acknowledge that there's a broader social context in which we use these terms. And there, I think there is a challenge because sometimes people use the word resilient communities to make it seem almost like, well, uh, you know, these folks have always borne the brunt of these kinds of things. And you know what? They'll just keep being resilient when the next thing comes along. And that is a huge injustice to basically define communities in that way and just assume that repeated hits to their way of life and their economic livelihoods is okay because that's always how it's been and that's how it's going to be. We have to challenge that interpretation of resilient communities. And I think many people have, in the aftermath of Katrina, for example, said, stop calling our Gulf Coast communities resilient. When you say that, what we hear is, we should just keep experiencing these harms and there is going to be no responsibility to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So there's so much within that concept, right, of resilient communities. I see why people, some people are averse to it. I see why it could also sort of portend to challenge us to envision how communities can rebound from these things. But I'm, I'm wondering what you think are some of the biggest barriers to enabling of vulnerable communities with the least access to resources to become more resilient in the face of these increasingly devastating storms, floods, forest fires, droughts, and other climate-related disasters. We've had some of everything in the United States this year. And of course, we've had other climate-related events, devastating events around the world. But right now, as you and are speaking, there's a just a massive crisis unfolding in North Carolina where animal waste, contaminated sites, Superfund sites, hazardous waste of every source is now underwater and mingling with sewer waste and just floating all over eastern North Carolina. And there's some communities that have been impacted time and time and time again. I'm thinking about Princeville, um, New Bern, Edgecombe County, North Carolina, and other eastern North Carolina places. They are consistently the ones that bear the brunt of these increasing climate disasters. What can people do, Rachel, to prevent this from from plaguing them again and again and again? Yes, as you point out, Bernice, as we were seeing the impacts of Hurricane Matthew play out, especially in places in North Carolina, as you describe in eastern North Carolina, we've seen the kind of record inland flooding that rivals what we saw after Hurricane Floyd. And many of the same things happening to the same people again. So as you described, the the waste leakage from the goons, this is something that happened after Floyd. We see coal ash ponds that might be leaking toxics. And we see people who really were already uh, living in places that had very high poverty rates and now have to cope with this unimaginable, how do we rebuild our lives in these places? 2016 is on track to be one of the most expensive years as far as uh, weather and climate-related disasters in the U.S., We've seen record flooding in Louisiana, in West Virginia, in South Carolina, and now after Matthew. So why are we not doing better as a nation? And I think one of the biggest lessons that we take from seeing all these events is that we need to prepare well in advance of when these types of things happen. We have to target those resources to communities well in advance This is not about just emergency response uh, once something terrible happens. It's really about laying the groundwork well in advance. 
And what, what we also learned through the NAACP UCS convening was folks who live in these places have very good ideas about how to make things better. So let's start there. Let's get people to the table. Let's get folks from the community helping define what those solutions look like, not just some top-down process from the outside that doesn't recognize the individualities of these communities. And finally, we need resources because people cannot make themselves more resilient without those resources available to them. Right now, the way we target our funding is not taking into account the fact that some communities are being disproportionately impacted and need more resources ahead of time. And this is uh, important not just at the federal level, but often federal funding through FEMA, through HUD, etc., flow through state uh, decision-making authorities. States need to make sure as well that they're targeting those resources to their citizens who need them the most. And finally, I would say the only way we can be more prepared, especially in a climate-altered world, is by making science-based decisions. So we need good science as the bedrock of all our policy-making decisions. Communities need to have access to that information so that they understand the types of risks they face and the choices that they can make in that future. So while we're mentioning the places that have been so, so severely impacted this year, We should not leave out the Pacific Northwest, which has just weathered two successive hurricanes, one on the heels of the other. I don't know when's the last time I've heard of hurricanes impacting the Pacific Northwest and also the devastation that Matthew has wrought to our nearby Caribbean neighbors um, in the Caribbean region of Haiti and Cuba and a little in the Dominican Republic, but also the Bahamas. And we still don't have a lot of information about what's happened in the Bahamas, but we can see that Haiti is has been um, uh, just parts of Haiti have been completely, utterly devastated. And how will they be able to be resilient and pick themselves back up without support from from the U.S. and other other neighboring nations? What do you think, Rachel? Absolutely, Bernice. So the issue of climate justice, climate equity, it's a global question that we face. And so this isn't so much about one country against the other, but it's as a global community, we have to recognize that we have these very unequal impacts playing out today around the world. So when a storm hits, like the storm Hurricane Matthew, you can see how devastating it is for a country like Haiti that was already struggling with poverty uh, and development issues, and now it's just taking this big hit that's setting them back again. I would say this is one of the biggest challenges we face as we try to implement the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement is considered a signal success from the global community, all the nations of the world coming together and saying, you know what, we're going to take climate change seriously, we're going to do something about it, and we all agree that we're going to be part of this enterprise. There's a lot of emphasis on the emissions reduction piece of the Paris Agreement, which is very important. We've got to limit carbon emissions to get a handle on climate impacts that are unfolding. But at the same time, we recognize that the emissions that we've already let into the atmosphere are have locked in certain climate harms. And what are we going to do about helping communities cope with those harms? That's the piece of the Paris Agreement that we also need to make sure goes forward. So whether that means making sure that we're making investments in climate resilience around the world, or one of the issues that has come up is the issue of loss and damage, uh, which basically says, look, 
harms have already been done to other countries. So will the countries that have been more responsible for emissions be willing to help other countries because of this harm that, that's being imposed on them? And that is a very contentious issue in the global community. Countries do not want to take responsibility. The U.S. in particular has said they have a red line around issues like compensation. But the reality is that we have to find a just way in which to break through this because otherwise we're leaving countries to fend for themselves for harms that, that we've done as a result of our emissions. And that certainly is true for our nearby Caribbean partners who share atmospheric reality with the United States. And I need to mention also um, Hurricane Nicole that has had a devastating swipe through Bermuda just this past weekend. So, Rachel, in my lifetime, I don't know when I have seen so many storms, devastating storms impacting the same area at the same time, one after the other after the other, plus um, heat records. So we've, you know, we've broken the all time heat record in the United States in 2016 already. And we're just in October here in D.C see the weather is going to be in the 80s today in October. So there are some really strong indicators that we really need to step up. And in that regard, what do you think communities can do and local governments can do to make themselves better prepared to withstand or recover from climate impacts? Yeah, I, I should just add, Bernice, you know, we're, we're seeing even right now a terrible typhoon, Typhoon Haima, heading towards the Philippines. So, again, another nation that has been hit repeatedly by these, these record-breaking typhoons. It is on track to become a super typhoon, Category 5 winds, uh, 160 miles per hour. Actually, just now what hit the... Pacific Did you say 160? 160. And what what happened in the Pacific Northwest over this past weekend was actually the remnants of a typhoon from the Pacific Ocean. And by the time it reached, there were these super strong storms with a lot of rain and uh, coastal storm surge. So, yes, this is happening. We're starting to see these, these record storms. Sea level rise, which is just a secular impact. You know, it doesn't make the headlines every single day. But you know what? It's happening. And it is projected to get much, much worse. We're seeing record low extents of Arctic sea ice. What happens in the Arctic has significant impact on our weather patterns around the world. So, yes, it's time to take this seriously. And when we look at what we can do to better prepare ourselves, I think for us as a nation here in the U.S., I think the first step for us is we've got to acknowledge it's happening. We have to make sure that our policymakers at every level of government are making policies on the basis of science. That just has to be a threshold of how we can do better going forward. We are almost unique in the global community to be still disputing the reality of climate change. It's long past time to move beyond that. So then what we have to do is make sure that the science that's available is actionable at the local level. The next iteration of the National Climate Assessment will be getting underway, and that type of science can help local policymakers decide, okay, in my community, what do I need to do better? The federal government is in the process of, across the board, having all agencies do climate planning so that any agency action now needs to take into account climate change. The Obama administration has made available a U.S. Climate Resilience Toolkit. It's available at toolkit.climate.gov. It's an interactive web interface that helps you learn how you can build resilience to impacts, 
but also learn from other places that are doing this around the country and, and uh, learn from, from those examples as well. I would say the most important thing that we need to do is start having these conversations everywhere around the country, small communities, big communities. We need to define what is the future we want. We still have choices. We still have the responsibility to make those choices in a way that will serve our kids and grandkids well. But we can't keep ducking the question and keep on doing business as usual and expecting that this will play out anything but badly going forward. So I would say that kind of stakeholder engagement with experts at the table bringing good science is important. The equity dimension has to be baked in from the beginning. Uh, often in these planning processes, one goes through planning and then someone along the line says, oh yeah, and what about equity? We have to make sure equity is built in from the beginning because the solutions look very different when you're trying to do climate resilience with equity in mind versus just building a fortress world where some people are protected and some aren't. So Rachel, our next three questions are what we call the lightning round questions. Um, so I'm going to ask you the question and I want you to respond with the first thing that pops into your head. If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to more resilient, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? I would say the most important thing is uh, better economic opportunities because communities that have good jobs, have good opportunities, are going to be more resilient communities. And then what one action could our listeners take to help build a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future? I would say uh, you should make yourself aware of the kinds of risks you face from climate change in your community. There's good information available from the Climate Resilience Toolkit, as I mentioned, toolkit.climate.gov. And you need to hold your local policymakers accountable. You need to keep asking them those questions. So you have a development plan. Tell me how you're taking climate change into account. So you're building this road. Have you accounted for the prospect of sea level rise. You need to make sure that all uh, policymakers are constantly being asked this question so that it becomes part of the discourse. And then finally, if you are successful in the work that you and the Union of Concerned Scientists are doing, what will our coastal communities look like 30 years from now? Wow. I think that question is a very community-specific question. I think there's good work being done by folks who live in these communities. And I think that vision of the future really has to come from there. We, for example, as the Union of Concerned Scientists, want to make sure that we're translating the science and making it available for people, that we're having conversations with stakeholders. But I absolutely believe that the future vision comes from the community itself. In some places, people will choose to find ways to uh, make their communities livable, in a climate-altered world, in other places, they might decide that some kind of a managed retreat or relocation is what they would like to do. But those choices have to come from the communities. Well, Rachel, we could talk to you for hours. I would just like to go through every page of your report and have you summarize for folks, because I think it is one of the, the best contributions to this conversation about the impacts and the threats of climate change to communities. Um, your perspective is so ground in reality. And I just want to highlight that the name of the organization Rachel works for is the Union of Concerned Scientists. And I just want to give a shout out to all the scientists 
scientists that continue to fight back against the push against not making decisions based on science. So many of them are part of the circle of the union and concerned scientists. And Rachel, we thank you so very much for sharing your work, for being so gracious and giving us your time and for continuing to do this work. So thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. Thank you so much, Bernice, and thank you to our listeners. Please visit our website and find out more about our work. It's www.ucsusa.org. And if you're living or working in one of these frontline communities, we'd love to hear from you what you think should be part of a more resilient future. So please do check out our website and reach out. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll pick this conversation back up next week with our special guest, Derek Evans, to talk about the documentary film that he's featured in, Come Hell or High Water, and one of the case study communities that Rachel mentioned, Gulfport, Mississippi, and the entire Gulf Coast. So thank you all. We look forward to having you join us next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.